welcome to the HJ Talks About Abuse podcast, the podcast where we talk about sexual abuse cases in the hope that it will assist listeners in openly discussing topics which have been ignored for too long. This podcast is brought to you by the abuse team at Hugh James. We are lawyers, so we tend to speak about the legal aspects of abuse cases, but we aren't too shy to speak up about the broader issues faced by survivors of sexual abuse too. We hope that you find it interesting, but more than that, if you are a survivor of sexual abuse, we hope that you find our discussion empowering. Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Alan Collins. I'm the partner who heads up the abuse team at Hugh James. Welcome to our weekly podcast. This week, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Mark Kavanagh from ECPAT. Hi, Mark. Hi, Alan. Lovely to be here. Thank you very much. Before we get into the podcast, I give the sort of health warning, so to speak, because obviously we're going to be talking about, given the nature of the podcast, sensitive issues, which can be upsetting. Some people can find it very distressing for understandable reasons. So if you think you're going to be affected by this podcast, then now's the time to go off and make yourself a cup of coffee. Otherwise, please stay with us. Right, Mark, thank you very much for joining us. Perhaps you'd like to tell us a little bit about you and a little bit about ECPAT. Thanks, Alan. Yeah, so my name is Mark Kavanagh. I'm the Head of Research with ECPAT International. ECPAT's an interesting organisation. It's a a global membership organisation. So I'm a part of a small team that facilitates work focused on ending the sexual exploitation of children around the world. And our membership includes 122 independent organisations in 104 countries. It's a very widespread coverage of the globe. We're specifically focused on things like research and advocacy to end sexual exploitation and abuse of children. Excellent. Well, sexual exploitation is very much in the news. Actually, here in the UK, it's um, very much in the news because Prime Minister Boris Johnson earlier this week, referred, how can I put it, in the most neutral of ways, to the notorious sex offender Jimmy Savile and um, and the scandal that goes with Savile were erupted, I think, on the top of my head now, nine years ago. ICSA, the Independent Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse, which was uh, an inquiry set up by the government, ironically, published a report this week which was concerned with exploitation, organised exploitation of young people. So it's all extremely topical, if not something of a hot issue at the moment. But anyway, let's get back to what we are going to talk about in this podcast. So ECPAT has done some research and produced a report. And I think the report can be found on ECPAT's website. Yes? That's right, ECPAT.org. Yep. Yeah, so I've got in front of me Disrupting Harm in Kenya, Evidence on Online Child Sexual Exploitation and Abuse. But your research goes much further, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right, Alan. It's actually part of a quite a massive project. We think it's probably one of the most comprehensive looks at child sexual exploitation and abuse that's really been undertaken. It's actually a partnership between three organisations. So it's ECPAD, of course, as well as Interpol, the international police organisation, and UNICEF, so the branch of UNICEF focused on research called Innocenti. So quite a substantial piece of work. We've looked at this issue across 13 countries, with six countries in Southeast Asia and seven in uh, Southern and East Africa. But as you, as you know, we're here today to talk 
probably mostly about the report for Uganda, which was released uh, late last year. So I have actually worked in Uganda on cases. So I've got a little bit of an insight, but I'll put my hands up to thinking online exploitation and everything that's going with that is a Western world problem, largely because of a lot of the research that is out there. It seems, you know, to concentrate on Western Europe, Australia, US, Canada, and so on. And so a lot of the focus seems to have been on European civilizations. And uh, I suppose thinking about it, actually, that's probably very erroneous. Yeah, I, I think you're right. One of the things that's, I think, really interesting about this work is the specific focus on countries beyond yeah, what we tend to know about this topic. I agree with you. I think in the years that I've been working in research and working in in the, I guess, the non-government sector, I've seen the same. So often we'll look at the research and try to find out what it says about a particular topic and we'll get sources of data from, like you said, the US, Canada, the UK, Australia. And it's not always realistic to transfer that to the you know the full range of settings around the world so in actual fact this project's useful in in that respect and it's kind of where it came from the global partnership to end violence against children noticed the same thing and it made a pretty unprecedented commitment of seven million dollars to to get into this research and put more data more broad data on the table so how would you or how did you undertake research in Uganda because, again, maybe I'm talking out of the back of my head, maybe I'm talking out of ignorance, even though I've done work in Uganda, is I would have thought it's very different to trying to undertake research in Australia or the UK, for example. Well, we sort of approach the research question, I guess, the same way as you might do in other places. We thought, let's let's come at it the same way that you usually would. We look for a, a selection of data points that we can, I guess, triangulate and compare to each other and, and see what we came up with. And so we did a, a massive household survey. We interviewed a 1,000 children and a 1,000 caregivers across the country in Uganda. We did interviews with government representatives, people in ministries and senior positions that are responsible for child protection and responsible for cybercrime and things like that. We spoke to people who'd accessed the justice system or tried to, so young people, their caregivers, um, prosecutors, defence lawyers and others who are involved with what happens once something's raised with the police or, or makes it to the court processes and ask them about their experiences. And we spoke to law enforcement, so Interpol rebels who, because of their relationship with local law enforcement, have pretty frank conversations with what's going well, what's a struggle, as well as access data about crimes that are relevant to child sexual exploitation and abuse. Okay, so that's what you did. And you started to get feedback, results, contributions. What was the emerging picture? What did you find? I like the way you've asked that question because it, it actually was kind of surprising. So you said at the start of the chat today that you know, we have lots of assumptions about what this problem might look like outside of the context that we know. In fact, we saw lots of things in Uganda and in the other countries we looked at that are pretty similar. So maybe it's not surprising 
you know, in a conversation like this and with people that know about this topic to, to hear that child abuse happens everywhere and it's affecting children everywhere. It's just that maybe we didn't know about it because we weren't asking the right questions or the evidence, you know, hadn't been gathered. So in Uganda, using the household survey, we found that as many as 40% of children aged 12 to 17-year-old are online at least once a week. When you look at breakdowns like age groups, I think it was 16, 17-year-olds, that's as high as about 68%. So yes, internet penetration is not quite as ubiquitous as it is in Australia, but it's still pretty high. Yeah. The thing that's interesting too, and perhaps when we get on to talking about some of the problem and the solutions later, is that caregivers, the parents and the people looking after children are not online quite as much. So that means that that, that sort of opportunity for them to help out and guide and provide information isn't there. Right. So the older folk, let's put it this way, the mm. caregivers may not have necessarily the same insight because of their own usage or limited usage as we would perhaps want so they're not able to monitor yeah. yeah. So yeah. there's this sense that their their knowledge of technology is certainly not always as advanced as young mm. people. But the other thing that we found, especially talking to children, is that they're not necessarily looking to t- to caregivers for you know information about the internet. They're looking to caregivers for information about how to spot ill-intentioned people. You know, which is is actually the same principles as how we teach children to, you know, be safe in the real world. So So how are those children and young people picking that up? Because, you know, if they, you know, if their radar is working, their antenna is working, that's obviously good. So when we look at some of the the findings, like amongst the the young people that we, we surveyed, quite high proportions were experiencing what we call potential exploitation and abuse online where people were asking them things like asking them to talk about sex or asking them to share sexual content images and videos of themselves. So not all of that's necessarily uh, indicative of an offender. It could be amongst their peers, it could be their boyfriend or their girlfriend asking these things, but they told us that those things are uncomfortable and we want to report on this because it tells us, you know, the potential extent of what's going on. You know, Alan, that when you're measuring child abuse, lots and lots of people don't want to disclose it, certainly not in a random survey, you know, they want to tell someone they trust. So um, we asked these questions that weren't specifically you know have you experienced abuse but more about the kinds of things and it's as I said it's high it's in some of those categories of what we asked it's as many as 25 percent of children in Uganda were being asked to talk about sex or asked for photographs and things so and these questions were they coming from within Uganda or were they coming from outside combination of two yeah, good question. So this whole research took place while everybody was locked down. You know, it was we had this grand plan for how we were going to do disrupting harm and then just as we were getting all our ethical approval through and ready to start collecting data, this global pandemic struck us. So we did quite a bit of rearranging and I think in the end it was great because what we ended up with was a lot more local conversations on the ground. So that survey absolutely was done in Uganda by um, qualified and expert 
surveys, the conversations that we had with the, particularly those young survivors who had experiences are conducted by, you know, trained local psychologists and social workers who, who we, we briefed up on the methodology and then they went out and had, had the discussions. So it's all very localised data, which I think is pretty unique. Right. And that data, that information, does it give us an insight as to where the potential sources of, you know, exploitation are coming from? You know, is there a particular problem in Uganda? Is there a unique problem in Uganda or is it a more generalised one that we are familiar with, whether it's Australia or the UK? Yeah, look, I don't think it's particularly unique in Uganda. The thing that's probably unique is it's an emerging issue. So as I said at the beginning, 40% of of 12 to 17-year-olds are online regularly. That's not as high as elsewhere. So it's possible that people are still a bit naive to engaging with social media and and how to conduct themselves in a a circumstance where the person they're speaking to is anonymous and unknown and things like that. So that's perhaps a bit unique. But the nature of the perpetrators is, is kind of really consistent in Uganda and across the disrupting harm countries, and I don't think this is going to surprise you. But we found that the vast majority were young were people known to the young people. So offenders are coming from within the community. People we spoke to talked about how they were friends of the family or friends of friends. Some cases it's adult friends or adults that are connected somehow to the children. And in other cases, it's also young people. So older young people who are perhaps taking advantage of younger ones and things like this. But it's not foreigners so much, Alan. There's lots of a a sense that it's, it's someone from outside who's doing this when, in fact, the abuse is happening within the household and community. Yes, that's interesting, isn't it? And um, any sense when it's sort of peer exploitation or the risk of peer exploitation, any sense of normalisation? This is what you do, this is how it is? I'm thinking about the data. I can't answer that one so well. Yeah, Mm. I think there's certainly a sense within the community that the sense within the community that I don't think is quite aligned with what's going on. So often the community attitude is you need to be careful with strangers, you need to be careful online that you don't do the wrong thing. So there's an element of kind of victim blaming there, when in fact it's much more subtle stuff. So it's it's that grooming process where the young people are engaging in conversations with someone who they think might be a peer who's misrepresenting themselves or leading them down the pathways of a quite reliant relationship and then they find themselves sharing more than they should and and then find themselves in in complex situations of coercion and and deception. So those things are a little bit, yeah, they're they're a bit unusual, I I guess, but it's, well, maybe, yeah, it's not that unusual actually. No, yeah, 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 but I understand where you're coming from. So educators, law enforcement, how savvy are they with this and and trying to get beyond the curve? So, I mean, I'll I'll talk about the two because I think they're a little separate. From the side of law enforcement, there's actually some relatively good structures in Uganda. And if you look at the report, we've got access to some, some nice data. The data that is presented is really about what's known as in Uganda is the crime of defilement. So it's quite an outdated term, but it's the term that's used essentially to describe sexual interactions with children. So the numbers there are kind of constant at about 15,000 cases a year are being raised on this topic. But what we didn't see was a distinction between 
those defilement cases that were involving technology. So we were specifically interested in online forms of this crime, right? But we actually weren't able to disaggregate that in the way data is being collected. So it's good in the fact that child sexual abuse and exploitation is being understood and addressed by the law enforcement, but it's probably bad in the way that these online and technological components aren't fully being grasped. So lots of the things with you know, the distinction between online and offline are relevant because they're both, you know, basically the same things going on, but some of those things in the online environment are a little different. So maybe their legislation needs to be updated there's, there's elements of the legislation that do, yeah. So there is a couple of laws in discussion. So first of all, there's Computer Misuse Act, which is not bad. It actually defines things like child sexual abuse materials quite well, but there is scope for improving that to talk about some of the emerging concepts like grooming or live streaming abuse, which yeah. doesn't create a record. And there was also discussions about what's called the Sexual Offences Bill over the last couple of years, and I'm not sure if you're across this, but the President actually knocked it back um, August last year because of some sort of controversial elements um, of the bill. So that hasn't progressed and it would actually, I mean, I agree with some of the controversial elements not being approved, but I also think clear definitions of sexual offences is probably still warranted in the law. Yes, Uganda is a country where same-sex relationships are Mm -hmm. viewed differently to say, you know, in Australia or, you know, the UK, Western Europe generally. And that is, uh, you know, an issue that, you know, comes to the fore quite often. And of course, it's not just only Uganda. There are other places in, in Africa as well where it's a, a controversial issue. Well, just to comment on that, yeah. we saw something really interesting because you know, the vast majority of those defilement cases that I spoke about earlier involved female children. But there was a small proportion of them, I think it's less than 5%, who involved male children. Right. We think that Things like legislation that outlaws same-sex interactions probably discourages boys from coming forward and talking about what's happened to them because they fear you know, basically self-incrimination because yeah. of those, that legislation. So yeah. I suspect that certainly there's a lot more going on impacting boys that isn't yeah. really being disclosed because of some yeah. of those fears. There's fears taboo, stigmatisation. Well, potentially being, you know, prosecuted, prosecuted. for what's happened to yeah. 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 So you yeah. come forward and disclose that, you know, an offender has done something to you and you're actually technically on the wrong side of the law. That's right. And that's you know, that's yeah. really problematic. Yeah. Huge deterrent, potentially extremely damaging. And do we see how these cases pan out prosecution-wise? So some of them are certainly prosecuted and, and there's certainly convictions that are occurring in Uganda, which is great to see in, in other parts of the world that we conducted this research, we didn't necessarily see that. We did speak to young people who'd gone through the court process, however, and, and found the process was pretty lacking in a few ways. Um, so specifically, we spoke to six young women or, or girls who had reported formally um, what had happened to them and sought justice. Of the six, only one of those cases actually made it to the court process and it ended up being settled out of court, which doesn't necessarily mean uh, guilt, as you know, but we sort of thought that if that of the small number that we spoke to, and it's not necessarily representative of the full picture. That's not a not a great track record. No. Um, the the young women spoke about being 
kind of disappointed and somewhat hurt by the process. They, they felt at various points blamed or not taken seriously, partly because of the online nature of the crime. There's, yeah. I think there's a, a great comment with, from one of the young people saying, how do I make sense of something where it feels like I was actively involved in this? You know, I may or may not have taken off my clothes for the camera and, and things like this. It feels like I'm responsible. Of course she's not because it's yeah. always the responsibility of an adult not to yeah. abuse yeah. children. Yeah, but there's the, that sort of misplaced sense of responsibility, blame mm. and all the rest of it, which is you know, right. very unfair and very destructive. Alan, you spoke a little bit before about you know, what the solutions are in terms of talking about this topic, and I think what you've just said there is like, right on the nail, that the conversation needs to let young people know that that's not the case. You know, we yeah. need to really strongly say there's no circumstances where, you know, an adult has abused or exploited you where you're responsible. It's simple. And, and certainly in Uganda that's a message that some people are starting to use and I think, you know, needs to be reinforced and communicated yeah. as widely as possible. Yeah. So who's pushing in that direction? So the government's got a few things in process that are great. We noticed in the research and commend the development of a national working group to prevent online child sexual abuse and exploitation. There's a national plan of action under development, which is actually good to see uh, because a plan commits to really specific government actions. We haven't seen that come about yet. And we, you know, one of the advocacy points attached to this project is certainly seeing the plan come about and seeing some money put behind it and, and some actions put behind it. There's a few ministries involved too that have various, I guess, tools that are facilitating better understanding of child online sexual exploitation and abuse. The Ministry of Gender, Labor and Social Development's developed guidance on child online protection. And there's also, of course, there's handbooks around general child protection that are relevant that we've recommended you start to include these new topics so that broadly across the country, um, government workers, civil society workers, teachers, police, anyone can have access to you know, what's best practice in engaging with survivors and, and those seeking help and raising concerns. Okay. And then going to the other side, so to speak, how is all this being communicated to, you know, young people? <laughs> Good question. I think one of the recommendations in our report is to see these sorts of messages included into curriculum. One of the best ways to get advocacy messages or awareness out there is to do that through school curriculum. Yeah. So as, as I said earlier, you know, those conversations about sex, about keeping safe online in this, you know, rapidly evolving and some, to some people very new environment and necessary. We really recommend just encouraging discussion on this topic, you know, so for caregivers to not feel ill-equipped to talk about these things because they don't know about technology, but to keep in mind that they certainly know about people just by being an adult, you know, about people, you know. So communicating some of those lessons in judging people's intention and understanding whether people are honest and uh, perhaps trying to deceive and, and take advantage. So those are recommendations, I guess, from the research findings. Sorry, perhaps don't quote me on this, but I, I vaguely do remember that work is underway in Uganda to consider um, child online protection in curriculum development, but I'm certain it hasn't been finalised if it is underway. Okay. And what can we in the so-called more sophisticated West learn from Uganda? 
Look, I, I mean, I think what we can learn is that this is a global problem. You know, it, it isn't something that affects people differently. And your work, Alan, you'll be aware that it's all levels of society. It doesn't matter what your education or your financial background might look like, but but all young people are at risk of being targeted. So that's the same in the Western world compared to parts of the developing world and, and research like this actually confirms that. We, we probably guessed that that was the case but now you know we have 13 countries that have varying levels of economic development and we're seeing quite consistent things across those countries. So what it tells us is we need a global response to this yep. problem. When we look at the online elements of child sexual exploitation and abuse, that's really obvious because it's a thing that's happening across borders, you know. People can sit behind a computer in Australia and take yeah. advantage of a, a young person in Uganda and yeah. that needs multinational global responses. Yeah, exactly. So we're coming to the close of the podcast. What's next for yeah. you and Ekpat in, in, in this area, this, you know, <laughs> this fascinating piece of work? So such a great question. Um, we're still really working hard on finalising all the, the next 11 reports. The Thailand report is due out later in February. The Tanzania report's due out early in March. There'll be a report for Philippines before the end of March as well. Another thing that we're also working on attached to disrupting harm is we're calling it our Survivors Conversations report, which I think is extremely interesting to engage with. It's, I wouldn't say great because it's actually quite difficult to read, but what we did across this project is sit down and have really frank, we call them conversations, with young people who'd survived being victim of child sexual exploitation. And those young people spoke really honestly and directly about what they think needs to change, and we've tried to present that in as unmitigated way as possible. So that report, when it comes out, I think should be fascinating to um, certainly people who've had these experiences um, to see how eloquent these young people around the world were in describing the problem, but also to those that are trying to, to do something to stop this happening. Excellent, because again, through my own observations experience, I think we miss so many opportunities when we don't actually listen to survivors. Mm -hmm. And you see all these fantastic reports coming out from here, there and everywhere, you know, on nice glossy paper and all the mm. rest of anything. Oh, this looks impressive. And then you actually realize that who's actually got and spoken to, Agreed, you know, yeah. to any, you know, of any of these youngsters or survivors who perhaps, you know, in some remote corner of some country somewhere or other. No, no right. one's gone and spoken to them. And so the report ends up being just an expensive folly, a waste of time. Right. Yeah. yeah, and it was yeah. expensive research completed by experts, you know, but yeah. people with lived experience are the real experts. Like, I, Alan, I love that you say that because I, I think more people in our sector need to be conscious of, of that thinking. Mm. Um, I think it, it is certainly on the agenda, but often people are concerned about doing further harm by research, which is also really valid. Our website's got a section called, we call it Perspectives of Survivors, and it's actually numerous reports from there's at least half a dozen countries now where we, we really let the young people who've had these experiences speak for themselves. I, I think that's a huge step forward in, in us understanding what's going on with this problem. Excellent. Thank you, Mark. I hope you can come and join us on another podcast if I can persuade you. 
<laughs> soon. Okay, I'd so love to. Okay, brilliant. So thank you, Mark. Thank you, Ekpat. Thank you, listeners. As always, listeners, if you've got any thoughts, comments, questions, then please do get in touch. We always like to hear from you. So once again, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you for listening to this episode of HJ Talks About Abuse. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to speak to us about something you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at aboutabuse at hjtalks.co.uk.